entertainment, sports, culture. This is Raleigh Co. Radio, podcast presented by Raleigh and Company. to uh, episode number three of... uh, My phone just went off there. Oh, nothing important. Just my wife. Uh, Welcome to episode number three of Spooning with Dimitri. I am uh, your host, Dimitri Ravanis, and this week's guest is Brent Hopkins from Empire Eats. Now, he's the chef at Gravy. He's the acting chef at the Raleigh Times. But he is uh, a guy that is really a go-to guy in the Empire Eats franchise, and and, and that is uh, a restaurant group that includes... Uh, the Pit, Settee, Raleigh Times, The Morning Times, Gravy. I might be missing another one in there, but Brent will uh, will tell you all about uh, the group as uh, the show goes on. But uh, I reached out to him as the head chef of Gravy, so that's where we sat down. We sat down in the uh, bottom floor of Gravy to have this chat. Uh, you will hear a sort of um, a sort of banging sound throughout the episode. That is because uh, instead of uh, the two of us holding the microphone this time, uh, I'd set up a little. Uh, tabletop mic stand, and uh, Brent makes his point. He he pounds on the table when he makes his point. So uh, if you notice that in the background, that is what is going on. Um, the music I chose for this episode is Justin Towns' Earl, Nothing's Gonna Change the Way You Feel About Me Now. And I, I kind of thought that was a good song for this, because like I said, I reached out to Brent as the executive chef at Gravy, because what I initially came into this interview wanting to talk about is how do you put your own spin on Italian food, right? I think people's ideas of Italian food are already so well uh, predetermined. Uh, Either they love it or they are just, you know what, I like lasagna. We'll go get lasagna from wherever is close. So I wanted to talk to, uh, to Brett about that and ended up learning a whole lot about not just his culinary background, not just the way things are done at Gravy, but where he got his philosophy about farm-to-table. Not just why he started doing that, but about how what that means to him has changed throughout his career. Uh, So enjoy uh, my chat with Brent Hopkins. He is the executive chef at Gravy and one of the go-to guys for the Empire Eats group. There's nothing gonna change the way you feel about me now. Lay down to sleep, that's when it'll hurt the most. You came here from Portland or started out in Portland? I came here uh, from Portland um, about five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So what brought you here? Uh, what brought me here was, um, you know, it, was, it seemed like a kind of up-and-coming food town, uh, the cost of living was much cheaper than the West Coast. Yeah. And uh, the ability to kind of um, be able to uh, do my style of food in, in uh, a market that hadn't really been as saturated as the Portland market. The Portland market is 
very saturated with the the farm to table concept mm-hmm. pretty much if if you're not doing it you're no one um so <laughs> you don't really stand out as right. much and so i knew that uh north carolina had this great diverse agricultural community um and i wanted to come here and kind of you know basically do my style of food uh, is is utilizing what's in season in the particular region that i'm in mm-hmm. and it's um, not just farm to table that they're crazy about in portland they they're like they're crazy about food period there right yeah it's a it's a yeah it's a big time foodie town um when i first moved out there there was stuff going on but um i spent 10 years out there and um as as it went on like there were so many restaurants and so many things to do and so many people pushing the envelope and and doing new things and uh it started ending up in all these magazines as yeah. a, you know top 10 foodie spot and there's some there's some great chefs out there a lot of the chefs were coming up from the bay area because it was too expensive to open up restaurants right so they're opening them up in portland for too expensive hundreds to just of about anything in the bay exactly area. hundreds of thousands of dollars less they were able to yeah. open up restaurants so um the uh the talent pool there is is immense. It's, it's something you would find in New York City or Chicago. Any any solidified restaurant town is it's happening in Portland. Yeah, and, and, it has been. And Portland is interesting from the from the food aspect in that um, you know it's something kind of relatively recent you're dealing with here in Raleigh. But food trucks are such a vibrant part of the Portland food scene, right? For sure. There's actually a whole uh, series of blocks that is. Uh, set up for food stalls or food stands or food trucks that it's it's there 365 days a year yeah all the time um and there's various uh parts of neighborhoods throughout uh different quads or quadrants of 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 portland uh that food trucks are are always there on the corner so yeah yeah it's huge it's yeah. huge i think uh this region was kind of slow to come come on board with the food trucks food trucks with laws and regulations and all that stuff Durham was probably a little bit less lenient and they kind of exploded there and Raleigh Mm -hmm. kind of followed suit a little bit later so it's good to see that that option yeah it seems to be that that seems to be the case like kind of around the south like the south was just a little bit slow to catch up to Mm -hmm. the food truck train just because uh, I mean you know frankly the south is slow to catch up to a lot of stuff down here we find sure but also it's you know there's there are rules and regulations that are involved with being a restaurant now to take that on wheels you know, now we have to figure out a, um, uh, what's it called, a sanitary way to keep gasoline and food next to each other. And I think, you know, a lot of it is, is steeped in fear. It's like, I, I think the health department really didn't know quite how to handle it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's just a slow education of, um, hey, this is good for the economy. Right. This is good. This is a good thing. Um, let's figure out how to do this. So yeah. That's how it came about. So let's talk a little bit about before Portland. And, and I mean, let's go back even before formal training. When did you kind of know that food was not just something you were interested in. Cooking was not just a fun hobby for you. This is, this is what you wanted to do. This is how you were going to make your living. Um, I think food has always been really important in my family, in my life. I, I, I like, uh, I, I in food to, uh, it creates community and culture. Sure. Um, and especially here in the South, um, I feel that the South is like the, the greatest, uh, basically, it's it's the truest of all American cuisines. I mm-hmm. think it has its most roots and 
and, and even it's steeped in poverty and so you use every single thing and um, gather around the family table and it creates that that community family dynamic and um, and it's, it's bonding that's based on food. Yeah. And so uh, growing up, um, we were always cooking, shelling beans, putting up corn, things mm-hmm. like that, working out of the garden, especially my grandmother uh, going over there on the weekends pretty much every weekend until I was probably a teenager. Now, um, just a... Uh, like a recreational garden or did your parents and grandparents no recreational garden yeah Um, just kind of a few beds in the backyard and uh, you know kind of seasonally driven you know um, grandma talking about how the tomatoes and when they're ready and this is what you do with them and this is what you do with the green tomatoes and um, so on and so forth the succession of the the planted you know the plants maturity yeah Um, so I think it was uh, those dinners that kind of brought me closer to food mm-hmm. and uh, an understanding at a young age on how to do comfort foods and 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 how comforty they were to uh, creating that that uh, family dynamic and bringing yeah. us all together as a family so where, um, where was that where did you grow up I grew up in Louisville Kentucky okay so, very cool. um, some people call it the south some people call it the in-between <laughs> line yeah. I don't know to me it's it's kind of the south but um, being here in North Carolina I feel like I'm really in the south now um, and kind of one of my true loves is is most definitely Italian food, mm-hmm. um, but I love Southern food yeah. as well. So um, sometimes in the restaurant we'll tend to mix the two together in some <laughs> uh, hodgepodgey kind of way with some Italian spin on it. Um, so we, we kind of um, skirt the line per se. Um, and then, you know, all throughout high school I had jobs in restaurants and I just love the adrenaline and, and the dynamic of, of being in the kitchen and being sweaty and being, uh, having this sense of com- camaraderie with, um, all these people that you are working with and, and being able to juggle as many different orders as you possibly could and be yeah. able to perfect them and bring them up. And, um, I think a lot of chefs and a lot of cooks are, are the same way. They, they kind of thrive off that adrenaline, that unstructured environment. Yeah. It's structured, but it's not rigidly structured. Um, and from there, um, it just became natural. And I knew that I wanted to do this, uh, for the rest of my life in, in some capacity. Um, at that point in time, uh, probably senior year, um, I started reading uh, Chez Panisse a mm-hmm. lot, uh, Alice Waters' cookbook uh, of her restaurant in, in Berkeley. And I become really inspired by um, seasonal cooking and seasonally driven stuff um, and how to work that into the particular restaurants that I was at, which had no understanding of seasonal ability. Of course, and, yeah. Uh, you, you have to realize this is you know late 90s, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, maybe one or two chefs are kind of flirting with the idea of regional cooking. Right. Um, and the rest is just, we're opening cans. We're not, we're not thinking about like where our food comes from and, and all that. So yeah. here I come. So and this is going to sound like very stereotypical, uh, a question of very typical, very, very stereotype of Kentucky in my head, but is there not a lot of cooking and aging with bourbon and stuff like that going on at that time? Um, Maybe to a little bit, but not to not to my knowledge. Yeah. You know, there was uh, this great uh, place called the Sealbach Hotel, um, which is a, f- a four-star hotel in Louisville. They were always doing regional food. They were right. always had chefs that that were down with, you know, using things from uh, bourbon horses, the Kentucky and area. Yeah. yeah, and um, 
other than that, it was few and far between. So like most of the country, it starts off slow. It starts off with those one or two <laughs> right. people uh, who are willing to kind of look at things a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And, it, and and people see the value in it and how different it is and yeah. how fresh and how invigorating it can be. And um, it just kind of grows from there. Yeah. So formal training or training on the job? Um, all my training is on the job. Yeah. I did go to culinary school for a couple semesters. Um, after being in the kitchens for about 10 years, I realized I was completely wasting my money. We were just going over the same things that uh, I had already learned. And so I, I dropped out yeah. um, a couple months, a couple semesters into it. Um, also, I would imagine that coming from that sort of background, you even learn you know, you've had your, your mentors in whatever capacity they've been in that have taught you the cooking part, but also you have seen the respect factor that, yeah, I mean, in the kitchen, that's got to be, that's got to be earned. There's no sort of, you know, he came out of, you know, culinary school of America or Le Cordon Bleu. We must respect him. Most definitely. Most definitely. I think that's, that's the, uh, kind of pulling the wool over uh over the your eyes uh with the culinary schools there's there's a there's tons of them out there and i think you know they're selling it to these these kids who are uh, uh very impressionable and uh they think as soon as they get out of school they're gonna instantly become chefs and right and with any artistic field i think there's just so much to learn and it just takes so much time and and um just to learn the subtle nuances of multitudes of how to do each thing mm-hmm. differently um so I feel it's 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 one of those kind of hands-on careers. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that in the last five or six years, I have learned a lot more about the financial aspect of running a restaurant, which is very important. Mm-hmm. You could be as creative as possible, and, but if you can't run a restaurant yeah. financially sound, you're not going to be around. It doesn't matter how great you are. Yeah. Um, so there is, I've definitely there's some value in it. Um, I just felt at that time it really wasn't for me. Yeah, I won't ask you to give away any sort of secrets of uh, the financial side of stuff, but how much of uh, being able to have a financially sound operation either in the day-to-day aspect of it, how much of that is knowing the personalities you're working with, whether it's your suppliers or the farmers or stuff like that, how much of it is sort of a, how much of, of what you pay is affected by being people's buddies? I can tell you what we do here at Gravy, and I think a, a big part of the, the farm-to-table movement for me is uh, creating and fostering relationships with local farmers. Yeah. Um, at this particular restaurant, we can have anywhere from 20 local vendors that are coming in throughout the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so it's all about um, having that conversation and creating that dialogue and saying, you know, we want to keep Gravy's soul intact. We want to really cook some great food. We yeah. want to cook some fresh local seasonally driven kind of stuff but we want to keep the price point to where anybody and everybody can come here and appreciate it yeah Um, and i think that's one of the successes that we've done here is we've kept our price point affordable for anybody to come in here Mm. and feel like they're getting value for one um they're full when they leave and the food that they're eating is wholesome scratch made and during the summertime, probably 70, 80% of it is coming from 150 miles or wow. less away. Yeah, very cool. So, and I think a lot of people don't really know that. Yeah. They don't really know that gravy is that uh, determined to uh, cook the best foods possible with, with, with uh, local foods. Yeah, like you, like you said, 150 miles away, that means everything is within, what, two and a half hour drive, right? Yeah. So then how much of your time as chef is actually spent on the road going to visit these farms and check out product? Or do people um, come to you? 
You know, it's kind of when we first started, um, we, I had some connections from uh, a prior rest, farm-to-table restaurant I worked at in Durham called Piedmont. Uh-huh. Um, and so we had a little foundation, and I was aware of some people doing things. Uh, but it took us about six, seven months to kind of build that up yeah. to where we were able to get all of our dairy, all of our meats, uh, a fair amount of our produce, some cheeses, um, all of our flours, uh, basically hitting all the, the kind of, uh, staple ingredients mm-hmm. was our first goal. Yeah. Uh, my first goal was let's get all of our meat from North Carolina and seafood and figure out how we can do that and not charge people an arm and a leg. Um, and so that was our first success. Um, and so we took some time on the road, on the phone, creating and fostering these relationships. And it, there, be, there came a turning point where people started contacting us mm-hmm. and they wanted to do business with us. And yeah. our name was getting out there as these guys will, they, they're down with the farmer community. They want to purchase locally. Um, and they wanted to get in here. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can make it work. Sometimes we can't. Um, from a financial perspective or just a volume perspective, this restaurant is is pretty small. So the amount of product we can take off people's hands is limited. But that also works in our advantage because we deal with a lot of small farmers, um, a lot of upstart farmers, a lot of young farmers, which I think is the most important key factor is is getting young farmers um, established. Mm-hmm. in the farming community uh, because the average age of a farmer is 55 years old. And so right. we're, we're in a dying kind of um, industry. And so to bring on young farmers, we have three particular young farmers that we work with right now for vegetables, and they're in their mid to late 20s. Yeah. Um, and what, what we're doing for them, I like to think, is we're giving them a foundation where they, they, they can say to themselves, we can make this work. We're not going to give up in two years and go on to do uh, whatever degree you right. went to, what they went to college for. Right. It's um, weird. It's, it's, so. it's weird how like this, this foodie movement, not just in North Carolina, but the way it's swept across the country and really the way it uh, sort of began from other parts of the world and then came here. Mm-hmm. It has resulted in both one of the newest trends in food, which is food trucks. And it's also resulted in a revitalization of the oldest trends in food where you have young people Kind of maybe maybe it's not paying off where they're all interested in farming to becoming farmers, but they are at least interested enough in where their food comes from and the process that mm-hmm. that is important enough to them that places like Gravy or you know Piedmont where you worked before and and Crawford uh, Lavoie the the sommelier over there is actually going to be a guest on the show cool. not long after you um, you know like these kind of places now are there's this real interest in them because people are now interested in where my food is coming from. Uh, it's just weird to me that, or interesting to me, I guess is probably the better word, that uh, being a foodie has resulted in this new trend and a renewed interest in, in the most important trend, right? Sure. In making food. Sure. I think, uh, I think it's a, uh, as a society, we've become detached from our food and uh, with, with food safety issues and local foods becoming more and more part of the mainstream which is a great thing because it brings down the, the cost yeah. um, of that and it makes it accessible to more, more people. Um, you know, I think food safety is a big, big issue and I think that, that people want to know where their food came from. Like your grandmother and my grandmother, yeah. they knew where their food came from. There was the local butcher in town. Right. There, they grew the vegetables in their garden 
X amount of seasons a year. Um, and so we lost that mentality uh, because as Americans, we want to just go, 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 and of we want everything fast. And you know, sometimes we have to slow down and, and take it all in. And yeah. you know, I think we, as a society, as, as, as Americans, um, we spend so much on, on healthcare. If we were just more cognizant of what we were putting in our bodies, I think that you know, the healthcare costs would right. decline. You know? um, so uh, f- for me, um, supporting local foods is, is, uh, is, is a, a multifold reasoning behind it mm-hmm. um you know we want we want to give people the best food possible and as a chef i can touch a lot of people yeah um and so you know we want to give you the best food possible without like throwing it down your your throat that hey this is local hey this is from this farm with all this paragraphs and adjectives and labeling on the menu and so we want you to just know that we're giving you yeah the best food possible yeah and um and, and, and in the end, we're helping you extend your life to some degree, depending <laughs> on how, how, how much you eat with us. Um, and so, so there's know, not and, a lot of there's not a lot of medicine or health food that comes covered in mozzarella and no, uh, and no, tomato sauce. No, no. <laughs> and so the great thing about the, the the dynamic of the gravy menu is we have this kind of cross culture of Italian American food. On, on one hand, the menu is you know lasagna you know, spaghetti and meatballs. On the other hand, it's our interpretations of Italian food utilizing what is regionally available to us within the Italian technique. Um, And so what we do a lot is, you know, we'll have raw, raw foods on the menu Mm -hmm. and, you know, we'll have different pastas with seasonal ingredients. You know, we're using Italian ingredients. We're using uh, techniques that are, uh, typically found in Italian cooking, yeah. you know, we're smoking, we're curing, we're, you know, adding those things to these dishes. We're making fresh pasta here, uh, with local flour and local eggs. And so we might have this lasagna and you might think, Oh, every Italian American restaurant has that. Right. right. But this lasagna is homemade pasta. Yeah. It's local beef always 365 days a year. And so that's what makes us different. And I think in the end, um, it's a pretty good lasagna. Yeah, and see, um, that, that's actually kind of one of the things I really wanted to get at, and, and I'll sort of ask your perception about this, is Italian food, it, it depends on the chef, and it doesn't depend on the chef. It depends on the chef in that, like, you know, like you said, you do local beef every time. It's homemade, uh, homemade pasta for the lasagna, so no one else is going to have gravy's lasagna. But there is that perception that Italian is Italian, and you know, why go, why fight the traffic downtown when Olive Garden or Johnny Carino's or whatever is right around the corner. Now, you know, I think people that like food know there's a huge difference between what you are doing here and what has come out of the microwave at Olive Garden that night. But that is, I would imagine, a perception you have to fight with the very casual go-out-to-eat diner. Um, we don't fight with them. We just make them feel at home. Yeah. You know, and that's what, that's, you know, what I, I talked <laughs> well, yeah, about I earlier. Is like, coming out of the kitchen. No, no. Li- <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Uh, not literally, but, um, we don't let that get us down. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a, a great cross section of people that come in here mm-hmm. and I want everybody to come here. And like I said before, feel at home. Yeah. Um, I want you to be able to afford what I eat. I, if you're into food and you want to see what chef Brent and his crew is doing seasonally, then you're going to come here and check it out when you know that it's spring time it's yeah. the first couple weeks of spring we're going to change the menu um they're going to come if you just like spaghetti and meatballs or you only like lasagna i want you to feel at home here and i think that's one of the the 
what makes us a success, what makes this restaurant be up in sales the last three years in a row. Um, and from a restaurant that was struggling to be financially viable to a restaurant that is still not, uh, still not known. Right. Um, it, but we are, are successful and yeah. we're growing and we're doing all the right things. And I think it's uh, not only great food, but it's great hospitality. It's, it's for me, and for my staff, it's the total experience when you walk in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's how you're greeted, you know. It's it's how your meal is. It's how hosp- hospitable our servers are, um, and you know, uh, the desserts. You know, it doesn't stop at the entree. You know, right. everything to me is like a course of perfection, right. and that's what we're shooting for: um, is to find to make everybody happy as, yeah. as much as possible. You yeah. will not always succeed. But if we get close, we're doing the right thing. Yeah. So being in downtown Raleigh, um, where you know for for so long, it was like if you wanted to go somewhere and have a drink, it was Glenwood South, and now you know this whole section of of um, Wilmington, Fayetteville, and Salisbury Street have these great restaurants that are accompanied by uh, great bars with great bartenders. How much of that has become sort of a part of the whole gravy experience? How much does kitchen playoff bar and vice versa at this particular restaurant or yeah. just in raleigh well i mean both like your perception of in raleigh and then you know what you actually see and experience day to day um i think that um i think that raleigh is is starting to get starting to grow and uh, sure there was the sex where it's like the young the young college kids go down to glenwood south right. and uh the People who wanted more of an experience would go to the Raleigh Times mm-hmm. for the selection of beers. Um, and I think here, um, you know, we've always been in this kind of like tunnel to where we're no matter what is happening, you know, we, we feed a lot of families. Sure. You know, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of families that come in. Um, there are a lot of people that appreciate food. Um, and I think that we have probably one of the best, most affordable wine lists in in the city uh in a sense where we're really searching out where these wines are coming from and you know they're organic or biodynamic or small producers and they're and and their cost the cost is not exorbitant right so we do a lot of uh when we seasonally change our menu we um we work with the bartenders and the front house management and kind of pair food with it to as well yeah um i'm not sure if i exactly answered your no question. Th- th- that does yeah. i mean that yeah. does because you know you look at places uh around here you know like right around the corner beasley's chicken and honey they have their very strict bar menu and just because gin is in a drink does not necessarily mean that you're going to be able to get a gin and tonic mm-hmm. there you know and and they i'm not going to say they build the menu around that but that is part of the experience right like if sure. you're going to beasley's chicken and sure. honey you you know that the bar is part of the experience which very similar here although i will say that gravy i've noticed more than any other place down here it does not feel like i'm walking into a bar to eat you know does that make sense yeah like the bar is very is very prevalent it's one of the first things you see when you walk in it's pretty big it's big <laughs> right but it's it's also not intrusive like it is just part of the restaurant to me and i, I don't know if that's coming across like a compliment it's supposed to <laughs> i mean it's it's very much supposed it should to should meld yeah yeah um into the surroundings yeah i mean for us um gosh i never I never want to be that pretentious. Sure. Um, uh, it goes back to just being accessible to 
a large proportion of the dynamic uh, yeah. of, of the demographic. I mean, um, of the city, and uh, and I know um, I know the owner. You know, he would want that too. That's what he wants. And so, you know, we it, being working here for almost three years, we're uh, you know we we see eye to eye in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and his his uh, understanding of hospitality and what he wants he wants to grow the community and just have good quality places for people to go yeah. and bring people downtown and create a scene yeah um, not in a hipster kind of way but um just to bring people and liven it up yeah and and, and create commerce you so know. you're also the chef at the raleigh times uh at least acting chef, right? Yes. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how you balance your, your work at the two. Uh, I know we talked before we started recording that you say you have a really good sous chef here at Gravy that allows you to put the focus on the times that they need right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of technique and how you built the menu, how much did you build off of what you learned about Raleigh from working here at Gravy? And I don't mean like specific recipes. I mean like what you know sells and what you know people are interested in all that kind of stuff um yes i I do work at the raleigh times i kind of um uh do double duty um i'll spend a couple days here at gravy yeah and the other three days over at the raleigh times and um at times if there's other things going on you you have a you have a regular five-day work week yeah how did you uh how did you pull off a regular five-day work week as a chef good support teams lots of mentoring and lots of training yeah um I'm a firm believer in you're only as good as you as your people are. Right. So uh, I put a lot of emphasis on developing and training uh, my sous chefs, my executive sous chefs who run the day to day in the restaurant. Um, was that always a goal, or was that a, a personality trait that had to be learned? Personality trait. Yeah. Um, that that I learned over the course of of years. Yeah. Um, uh, I think as a chef. Um, you learn a lot from bad situations mm-hmm. and maybe in any workplace situation that you come away with more uh, in bad situ- having been through bad situations than good situations. Yeah. Uh, so you learn, you basically learn, hey, I'm not going to do it that way because that doesn't work. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I just think that, you know, a lot of chefs, they, they want to do everything themselves. Um, they have a hard time. Um, you know, uh, articulating what they want. Mm-hmm. They're, we're artistic. You know, a lot of us are artistic. Right. We're creative. Sometimes we're the only ones internally know exactly what we want on. The, and sometimes we don't even know what we want, <laughs> you know, I'll be honest with you. Um, so it, it's, it's important to trust and teach and mentor. And, you know, mo- most of the time we're working five day work weeks and all my guys work five day work weeks. Yeah. I'm very adamant about, um, keeping work and home, uh, separate and creating a sustainable workplace, you know. Is that easy um, to do? I mean, is it easy to, like, when those I two think, days roll around or even when the end of the shift rolls around, to just turn it off for a little bit? Um, when I was younger, no. Yeah. Um, and at times I struggle, I won't lie to you. Uh, but most most of the time we can completely disconnect mm-hmm. and uh, just just come back into it off, after the two days off and, and, uh, and, and roll back into it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my time these days is, is, is built um, – Developing projects, writing menus, uh, training the sous chefs how to put out the menus, um, a lot of problem solving. Uh, my, my job uh, has become more mental mm-hmm. than physical. 
And so it's uh, a little different for me. It's been quite of a learning curve, um, but I love it. I love it nonetheless because I think it's a, it's a great opportunity to grow in another uh, capacity. Um, and I think we've done some great things for this restaurant group. Um, but we The group is Empire Eats? The group right? is Empire Eats. Yeah. 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 And we were talking before we started recording that you're doing a lot of research and development for them sure, right now, too. Sure. That has to be – now, I'm, I'm guessing, and, and I don't mean to speak for you. To me, that would be one of the most fun ways to go about being a chef is to really, even in a professional capacity, get to do the, all right, does this work, does it not, sort of experimentation. It is very fun. Yeah. And frustrating at times. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, these, these typically these projects, they, uh, they move slowly. Sure. And so there's a lot of time to work out the kinks. Um, and we want to grow as a group, and we want to grow when it's the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, not just to grow, just to grow. It has right. to be the right fit. And uh, so, yeah, we do a lot of, uh, you know, uh, different projects that we're trying to figure out. And, and uh, you know, they, they always have to be true, mm-hmm. true things. They can't be trendy. Uh up and coming kind of stuff. It has to be something that really feels right. Oh, so so uh, then, conceptually, as for a restaurant concept. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so you're talking about for a full restaurant concept, yeah. not necessarily just new things on the menu. Oh, new things on the menu. Um, well, that has to be right in its own way. Sure. Um, it has to work. I mean, we're definitely going to circle back to the full yeah. restaurant concept, yeah. but uh, but yeah, I do want to talk about like individual dishes a little bit too. I mean, um, there have to be things that you had the thought of. Oh, this will work great. That you know, in hindsight, or maybe not in hindsight, but initially you couldn't believe didn't wind up on the menu. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a lot of it is trial and error. And I think, I think a lot of it is, is an evolution. Each dish should evolve in its own way Yeah. in a short amount of time. Now you, you don't want to put a dish on the menu and it's not working. It's not working. And, and three weeks right. later you're like, okay, let's figure out how to fix this, <laughs> right. you know? <laughs> um, so I think each dish, when you initially put it out, um, has some sense of evolution or capable evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just the natural, like whether it's, oh, let's plate it this way, and then that doesn't work out, and let's, oh, let's do it this way. And what I like to do is I involve my team. Yeah. So it's like a collaborative thing. It's not just me coming up with the menus completely. Um, sometimes I, I really want to do something, and it's like, hey, this is what we're doing, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's like, a democratic kind of what do you guys think you know we got butternut squash we got leeks we got parsnips what mm-hmm. are we gonna do you know we've got the farm growing romaine for us up uh, for you know for three weeks so we can have romaine on the menu for three weeks and then we'll need to change so yeah um my kitchens have a lot of dialogue in them uh, there's a lot of conversation there's a lot of structure there's a lot of um uh from working in a lot of chaotic situations i said to myself when i get to that level, I want to create this, the most structured environment that I can in a non-structured world. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, we kind of, we make it happen. So um, each dish kind of evolves as, as it comes, you know? Yeah. And uh, sometimes they're complete disasters. Very rarely, but sometimes they're just like, this doesn't work. Right. Either <laughs> it didn't taste good or uh, we couldn't execute from a prep to plate perspective, uh-huh. um, the volume, we couldn't source the food. There are a lot of factors, especially when you're dealing with local foods and uh, quantities and availability is always a problem. Um, there may be times when the lamb farmer had lamb for three weeks in a row and 
she doesn't have any lamb anymore. Right. And she didn't let you know, and you have lamb on your menu, so you have to figure out what to do without lying to people and saying, oh, yeah, we've got local lamb on our menu. Right. Uh, but really, this comes from New Zealand or whatever, because <laughs> right. we're, you know, it's this lo- happened. It's you don't need to know that this. we were just down at Harris yeah. Teeter. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So definitely when that occurs, we, we just shank it off the menu if we can't source locally. Right. We're, we're, we definitely, uh, truth and authenticity in menu in menus is very important to me. Um, having come from restaurants who, some restaurants who were a little fibbing in that realm, um, I said to myself that we're, we're never gonna do that. Because yeah. why would we wanna do that? Right. Why would we want a lot of people uh, to create some kind of reputation? Yeah. You know? All right, well, let's, uh, let's start putting the bow on this uh, episode because I, I do wanna circle back. Let's talk a little bit about uh, research and development in terms of creating a new menu, a new concept uh, for a restaurant. It, it seems like Empire Eats, and just sort of for the listeners recap, that's, I know that's here, that's Gravy, that's The Times, that's Satie, and what else am I missing? The Pit. Oh, the big one. <laughs> right. Uh, so, and The Morning Times. And The Morning Times. Okay. Yeah. So tell me um, a little bit about, A, have you, in, in, the, in the time that you've been here, have you guys expanded? Have you added new properties in that time? We've added a new property in, Dur- uh, property in Durham. Uh, we have a, a pit in Durham. Okay. I don't um, know if you're aware of that or not. I was not aware of that. It's just been about a year. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what is what is the process like to get started on working on a new concept? Do you or do the owners, does everyone get together and, say, and someone says, hey, here's an idea I have. Do we think we can execute it? Or is it, does it go further than that? I mean, is it, you know, we have a space. What can we do here? Oh, I think it's, there's a lot of factors involved. You know, first we want to create, what can we create that that is void in the community yeah. that the community needs? So that's that's you the know? first part. Is I won't I don't know if that's the first part, but it's definitely a big important factor. Yeah. What hole um, can we fill and fill well? Yeah, spaces are usually not a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of space, mm-hmm. um, and then we start thinking about well, what kind of concept can we do that means something? Yeah, you know, um, and, and is going to add value to the community and. All of our concepts have been a con- con- collaboration mm-hmm. um, from the owner to the chefs to the front house managers, the GMs. Um, at times, we'll all collaborate on that particular project. Yeah. Uh, of course, there'll be someone kind of, a couple people come heading it up. Um, and once we figure out what we want to do, uh, we start laying out blueprints, designing spaces, um, and then it's just this back and forth of, what's going to work, what's not going to work, Yeah, and subtle tweaks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. Well, Brent, thank you so much for, uh, for sitting down with me, man. Thanks for having us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. So drink up, baby, try and push me out. Nothing's going to change the way you feel about me now. All right, and there you go. So a big thank you to Brent Hopkins from uh, Empire Eats, particularly Gravy and uh, the Raleigh Times for sitting down with me to uh, chat about his history in the restaurant industry. If there's anybody out there that you think or you are concerned that I don't know about their restaurant, whether they're a chef, an owner, uh, even a sommelier, um, I'd love to hear about it. So if you go to the Raleigh & Company page, raleighco.com, and search for the Spooning site, you'll see a little link there to send me an email. Please do that. Uh, I'd love to hear not only who you'd like to hear me talk to, but also what you think about the show. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and let you in on a little secret here. Before the holidays, 
I racked up a number of these interviews just because I didn't quite know how the launch was going to go. So I can tell you, and we mentioned this in the interview with Brent, uh, Crawford Lavoie, uh, the uh, sommelier and general manager over at uh, Piedmont, will be our next guest. And we have a few more in the can already, and we'll start doing uh, completely new shows where if you send me an email, I might be able to get to them in the next week or two here real soon. So uh, anyway, thank you so much for joining me uh, for this edition of Spooning with Dimitri, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Nothing's gonna change the way you feel about me now